your source when you need answers. The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. There's antimony, arsenic, aluminum, selenium, and hydrogen and oxygen and nitrogen and rhenium, and nickel, neodymium, neptunium, germanium, and iron, americium, ruthenium, uranium, europium, zirconium, lutetium, vanadium, and lanthanum, and osmium, and astatine, and radium, and gold, protactinium, and indium, and gallium, and iodine, and thorium, and thulium, and thallium. Well, welcome to all our listeners from New Zealand to Yukon. And uh, as you know, I like to start out by posing a couple of questions that hopefully are answered sometime during the show. You know that Montreal is known for its cheese bagels, and that is uh, something that is not available anywhere else. It's a unique phenomenon in Montreal. Well, in New York, we have something known as New York Egg Cream, which is a fountain drink. So here's my first question. What is unusual about the name of New York Egg Cream? the fountain drink. And let me pose a second question. What Nobel Prize winner donated his sperm to a sperm bank that aimed to spread humanity's best genes and wanted to collect sperm from Nobel Prize winners? So I'm looking for the name of the Nobel Prize winner who basically was a eugenicist and wants to donate his sperm thinking that... uh, the sperm of Nobel Prize winners should be used to spread intelligence throughout the world. You know that the value of plastics is, is really immeasurable. Airplanes, cars, computers, and hospitals could not possibly function without them. But as the common expression goes, there's no free lunch, especially if that lunch comes packaged in plastic. Researchers are now asking questions about the eventual fate of plastics, and not only about unsightly litter on beaches, not about straws in turtles' noses or birds being strangled by discarded six-pack holders. Question is whether plastics that can certainly save lives when they're used in airbags, in defibrillators, and in MRI machines, could they possibly also have a dark side in some applications. Maybe so. That issue has been raised thanks to modern technology that is capable of detecting the presence of tiny particles of plastic that form when bigger pieces break down. These are known as nanoparticles. They're measured in billionths of a meter. They're so small that they cannot be seen by the human eye. Certainly the concept of nanoplastics and whatever risk they may pose, never crossed anyone's mind in 1957 when Monsanto's House of the Future opened as an attraction in Disneyland in California. The promo at that time proclaimed that hardly a natural material appears anywhere in the house. This was at a time when replacement of natural substances, wood or cotton, by newfangled synthetic plastics was regarded as an advance. They were strong, long-lasting, and easy to clean. Monsanto, in collaboration with MIT engineers and Disney's Imagineers, aimed to demonstrate plastics' versatility. The outside panels were made of polyester reinforced with glass fibers. Inside, there were vinyl tiles on the floor, 
melamine dishes on the counter, acrylic curtains, nylon carpets, and a flat plastic television screen on the wall. The TV was never on for the simple reason that flat screen TVs did not exist at that time. So I guess in that respect, they kind of foresaw the future. The house was demolished in 1967 with difficulty. The fiberglass construction was so strong that the wrecking ball just bounced off. Eventually, workers had to use jackhammers and power saws. There was no concern about where the plastic would eventually end up, and surely no thought was given to the possibility that the fine particles that were scattered everywhere during the deconstruction could end up haunting us as they made their way into our food and water. Now, that is not an unusual situation for the progress of science. Often, a problem is identified and a solution is sought. After much work, an answer is found and is widely touted as a significant breakthrough. Then, as it is put into practice, an unforeseen new problem may appear that then has to be confronted. For example, when toxic ammonia or sulfur dioxide were replaced in refrigerators by safer inert freons, nobody could have predicted that these same freons would eventually end up in the upper atmosphere and destroy the ozone layer. When that was discovered, freons with a different molecular structure that did not interact with ozone were developed. While understandably, nanoplastics were not on anyone's mind when the house of the future featured the wonders of plastics. But now we are in the future and know a lot more than what was known back then. Thanks to the analytical equipment now available, we now know that just about every food we eat or beverage we drink contains nanoplastics, and they number not in the millions, but in the billions. What we don't know is whether these tiny particles can compromise our health, but it's a good bet that they're not doing us any good. Where do these nanoparticles come from? Improperly discarded plastic items that end up in water systems are a major source. As these get badgered by wind, waves, and sunlight, they break down into smaller and smaller pieces that may not be removed by municipal water filtration systems. In the ocean, they can end up in the bodies of fish and thence in people. Shipping accidents can also contribute to the problem. In 2021, a fire started aboard the giant cargo ship Express Pearl off the coast of Sri Lanka. It eventually sank and released into the water some 17,000 tons of plastic pellets known as nurdles. These are the raw materials that are melted and then molded to make plastic products. Thousands of marine animals died from ingesting the nurdles and those pellets are still the source of trillions and trillions of nanoparticles. Another source of nanoparticles are plastic food and beverage containers. Researchers at the University of Nebraska analyzed water that had been stored at various temperatures in plastic containers for nanoparticles. In all cases, millions were released from every square centimeter of the plastic. The greatest numbers detected were when the plastics were microwaved. To get an idea whether the nanoplastics had any sort of toxicity, embryonic kidney cells were exposed to nanoplastic tainted water. At the highest concentration used 
which was greater than normal human exposure, about 75% of the kidney cells died. This does not necessarily mean that nanoplastics can cause kidney problems in people, but we can discern that it is not a good idea to microwave plastics. That is underlined by research from the Medical University of Vienna that showed nanoplastics can even cross the blood-brain barrier. The study was in mice, but plastic in the brain is not a comforting notion. A further issue is that numerous additives are used in plastic manufacture, like flame retardants, plasticizers, anti-static agents, catalysts, viscosity modifiers, antioxidants, biocides, UV light stabilizers, and these can also be released, particularly with heat. Some of these may act as endocrine disruptors, meaning that they can have hormone-like effects. So when it comes to microwaving, use glass or ceramic. Of course, movements to eliminate all plastics are puerile nonsense, but we do need to use plastics more judiciously. We can surely do without many single-use items, and we can avoid microwaving plastics, even those that are claimed to be microwave safe. But unfortunately, we have to accept that nanoplastics, whether released from tires rubbing against pavement or from water flowing through plastic pipes or from synthetic fabrics in our washing machines, they're a part of our life. And that is something that we just have to live with. And by the way, the reason we now know all about nanoplastics in the environment is due to instruments known as nanoparticle tracking analyzers that can detect them. Of course, these instruments have numerous plastic parts. You're listening to The Dr. Joe Show, and we'll be right back. Science you can use. The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. Well, we did get an answer to one of my questions, and that was the one about uh, the Nobel Prize winner who uh, wanted to donate his sperm in order to spread humanity's best genes. Well, that was William Shockley, who uh, received the 1956 Nobel Prize in physics. <coughs> that was for the invention of the transistor. He shared it with John Bardeen and Walter Brattain. But um, Shockley, shockingly, turned into a eugenicist. And he proposed that individuals with IQs below 100 should be paid to undergo voluntary sterilization, $1,000 for each of their IQ points under 100. Uh, Shockley believed that there were differences, genetic differences between people. And um, basically, he thought that uh, white populations were intellectually uh, superior. I mean, he was, he was essentially a, a racist. Of course, he always denied that. He just said he went by the evidence. Now, someone answered uh, the question with the name of Robert Clark Graham. Well, Robert Clark Graham was not a Nobel Prize winner. But he was the one who actually started the gene bank or the sperm bank. 
And originally he wanted to have only Nobel Prize winners, but uh, it seems that Shockley was the only documented one, only documented Nobel Prize winner who ever donated uh, sperm. Uh, but he also wanted to collect sperm from people who had very, very high IQs or from uh, super uh, athletes. And in the end, uh, there were 218 children who were born with uh, the sperm that he collected. And uh, nobody really knows who they are, how they ended up, and whether or not there was anything to be had from his uh, experiments in, uh, in eugenics. But it's... Uh, pretty despicable that a Nobel Prize winner would uh, believe in in, uh, in racism. Okay, well, we had uh, that answer, but I have not yet gotten an answer to my question about egg cream, which is a fountain drink that is very popular in New York, especially in Brooklyn. Let me tell you a little bit about uh, alchemy. One of the most famous paintings depicting the history of chemistry is the discovery of phosphorus. This was painted in 1795 by Joseph Wright. You'll see that picture, or at least a picture of that painting, in numerous chemistry books, encyclopedias, historical accounts. It portrays a classic experiment carried out in 1669 by German alchemist Hennig Brandt, who, like many alchemists, was exploring the possibility of transmutation, namely turning base metals, such as lead, into noble metals, particularly gold. This was not only for the monetary value of gold. The metal also represented immortality, since unlike other metals, it never tarnished. One theory suggests that Brand believed the yellow color of urine was due to gold, which was the secret to life, and he believed that if he heated urine to dryness, he would be left with a residue of gold. This could even be the key to immortality, he thought. As he carried on with the experiment, the sun went down, and as the urine evaporated, his flask began to glow. He probably thought he had discovered the Philosopher's Stone, the mythical substance that could change matter from one form to another. <clears throat> what he actually discovered was the element phosphorus, which he named from the Greek expression to carry light. What actually happened? The heat broke down organic compounds in urine to yield some carbon that then reacted with phosphate in the urine, stealing away oxygen and leaving phosphorus behind. Although alchemists are often portrayed in history as charlatans or blunderers who did not recognize the futility of transmutation or the search for immortality, the fact is that their efforts led to discoveries like that of phosphorus, which laid the foundations to modern chemistry. Now, phosphorus, of course, turned out to be important in many respects. It uh, is an essential nutrient for plant growth, so it is formulated into fertilizers, and it was also responsible for the first matches. Before matches, if you wanted fire, it was not so easy to obtain. You had to use a flintstone, 
and uh, you rub these stones together to, to get a spark and uh, you would provide some powder that was easily combustible, uh, like sawdust. And if you were careful and knew what you were doing, you could spark a flame. So the birth of matches, uh, which burst into flame when the phosphorus-laden tip was scratched, there was a huge, huge development in, uh, in history. Unfortunately, very often new developments are also turned towards the detriment of mankind. And phosphorus, since it ignites readily when exposed to, to air, was used in various incendiary devices. And both in the First and Second World War, phosphorus bombs were used to uh, ignite whatever they landed on. And phosphorus, if it lands on skin, also causes terrible uh, burns. But phosphorus, of course, is also extensively present in the human body. It is part and parcel of DNA. It is found in many, many uh, biomolecules. So it's not a question of something being good or bad. It all depends on the uh, on the content, content uh, context, and uh, uh, phosphates are or at least used to be widely used in detergents because they were what was termed detergent builders. They would bind minerals in water that interfere with the activity of detergents. But it turned out that when the um, phosphates were released into natural water systems through sewage, they fertilized the plants that grow in water. And that caused uh, an uptake of, uh, uh, of carbon dioxide and uh, resulted in all kinds of problems in, in the water. It caused extens extensive uh, foaming in the water and eventually phosphates uh, were removed from uh, detergents as, as builders. So interestingly enough, uh, all of this goes back to 1669, when uh, the German alchemist, Hennig Brandt, discovered phosphorus present in, uh, in urine. And it must have been quite a sight when uh, in darkness, all of a sudden, this flask that had contained urine that he was boiling down to dryness began to glow in the dark. I mean, nobody had ever seen anything uh, like that before. You're listening to Dr. Joe Show. We'll be right back. Life's everyday mysteries solved. The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. Do you look upon the universe with wonder in your eyes? Do you tingle with attention when you're taken by surprise? If a problem should perplex you, does it put your brain in gear? Then you're ready for adventure on the science frontier. Well, Jessica got the answer right about the New York egg cream. It doesn't contain any eggs and it doesn't contain any cream. It is a fountain drink, it's a cold beverage, and it's made with milk, carbonated water, and flavored syrup, which is usually either chocolate or vanilla. And uh, it sort of was a cheap substitute for an ice cream float. 
and you make this by pouring the syrup into a, a glass. You add the milk, you add uh, carbonated water, you stir with a spoon, and uh, you get a foam on top, mostly because of the carbonation bubbling uh, through the milk. And uh, it is something that, uh, according to New Yorkers, has to be made with Fox's You Bet chocolate syrup, not something else. And uh, if you really want to make it right, you have to use a siphon bottle of seltzer, the old-fashioned siphon bottles, you know, the ones that the uh, Three Stooges and the Marx Brothers went around spraying each other with because that produces a very high level of carbonation. And um, you get a really nice uh, egg cream, which is unique to New York and more specifically to Brooklyn. And interestingly enough, in Brooklyn, you have the only remaining uh, producer of uh, seltzer water in the siphon bottles. And uh, is a company uh, known as Brooklyn uh, Seltzer Boys. And uh, they actually deliver the water in these uh, siphon bottles to, to homes. It is uh, the last remaining such uh, seltzer delivery surface. There used to be hundreds of so-called seltzer men in New York. And not only in New York, there were some in Montreal as well. But uh, when um, uh, carbonated water started to appear in uh, bottles in uh, supermarkets and when uh, SodaStream appeared, then uh, the seltzer delivery men uh, basically went out of business, except for the uh, Brooklyn uh, seltzer boys. And uh, they have uh, uh, a machine, a carbonator that is 100 years old and uh, difficult to keep in repair. They even have a small uh, seltzer museum and, uh, within their uh, seltzer bottling uh, plant. And they've been the subject of many articles in newspapers and, and magazines because they are the only remaining uh, siphon uh, filling uh, company uh, that is around. And those bottles, uh, mostly originally made in Czechoslovakia, made of very thick glass, and they can withstand much higher pressure than the plastic soda bottles that you get in supermarkets. And um, it seems that uh, the uh, siphon soda uh, has um, much, much stronger effect on the back of the throat, and that many people judge to be pleasurable. So there, now you know all about... Uh, New York egg cream. Uh, incidentally, uh, seltzer water is also sometimes called Jewish champagne because uh, most of the original seltzer companies were uh, Jewish companies and uh, were popular uh, on the Lower East Side in, in New York where many of the immigrants were uh, located because they brought their ideas about seltzer water back from uh, the old country. So there you go. Jewish champagne is used to make New York egg cream. All right, but now I got to come up with another question for you since these questions have been answered. So here we go. In 1921, 
German-born physician, Otto Lowys. Uh, he removed the beating hearts from two frogs and immersed them in a saline solution that allowed them to keep beating for a short time. One of these hearts had the vagus nerve that controls the heart rate still attached, the other did not. And then Lowy electrically stimulated the vagus nerve in one heart. And uh, then he took the solution in which that heart was immersed and dripped it over the second heart. So here's the question. What happened to that second heart? Okay, so let me make sure that you understand the question. A heart was removed from a frog with the vagus nerve still attached, and the vagus nerve is what controls the beating of the heart. He stimulated that vagus nerve, took some of the solution in which that heart was submerged, the saline solution, dripped that over a second heart that did not have any vagus nerve connected to it. And the question is, what happened to that second heart? All right, let me uh, uh, continue here with uh, a little story about speed toading, since we were talking about frogs. You know all those stories about kissing a toad and turning the warty creature into a prince? Well, there may be something to that. If the toad happens to be a Colorado river toad, these green or brown toads are native to northern Mexico and the southern U.S. and belong to the genus Bufo. They're characterized by the defense system of producing toxins, mostly from glands next to their bulging eyes. A predator that bites into one of these amphibians can have a deadly experience thanks to the toxicity of a combo of 5-methoxy-dimethyltryptamine and bufotenine. These chemicals are also potent psychoactive substances that when vaporized and inhaled can produce euphoria and even hallucinations. A phenomenon known as speed toting has become a virtual industry in Tulum on the Mexican Caribbean coast. Tourists are enticed at roughly $125 a pop to inhale the smoke from burning toad venom to help them deal with the ills of the modern world, reduce depression, and relieve anxiety. After indulging in such toading, which is completely legal in Mexico, some individuals report life-changing illumination and resolution of overthinking. Talk show host Joe Rogan, not exactly a font of wisdom, compares the use of bufo to the equivalent of 15 years of psychotherapy, something with which he is seemingly familiar, or at least should be. However, in others, the experience has been known to precipitate psychosis, insomnia, and paranoia. Now, there is legitimate scientific research going on to explore the therapeutic potential of such psychoactive substances. But that requires the use of known doses under controlled conditions. Self-experimentation on some back lot in Tulum is not the way to go. Nor is licking a bufo toad, as some have tried. No, that's not to be recommended. 
you may experience the hallucination of the ugly toad turning into a prince, but it could also be the kiss of death. So this is not something to experiment with. Although, as I said, there are very legitimate experiments going on these days about the use of such psychoactive uh, uh, substances, especially some of the plant-derived substances, such as uh, mescaline, uh, as a possible treatment for depression. But again, this is still at an early stage, and we'll have to see what comes out of it. You're listening to The Dr. Joe Show. We will be right back. Science you can use. The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. Grade A milk emulsified, maltodextrin alkylide, silicon dioxalite, lots of sugar. Hey, all right. Calcified synthetic salt, artificial barley malt, glycerin and aspartate, folic acid. That tastes great. Monosodium glutamate, dehydrated calcium. Uh, somebody wanted to know whether or not coffee is a diuretic. Oh, it sure is. The more you drink, the more you will pee. Uh, then I had another question. Does water that is used in the production of electricity heat up? Well, it depends how that water is used. <clears throat> when you're using uh, hydropower, such as we mostly do here in Quebec, where you're using running water to turn a turbine, it is the turning of that turbine that generates the electricity. In that case, the water is not heated up. However, in coal-fired or oil-fired power plants, what you do is use coal or oil to heat water so that it boils and turns into steam, and it is the steam that then turns the turbines that generate the electricity. So the water there certainly does heat up. After the steam has done its job, it is cooled back down and it is reused. But uh, the water does get heated up during the production of uh, electricity. All right, so I hope that we cleared uh, that one up. Now I want to talk to you a little bit about uh, cocaine, because we were talking about some psychedelic substances. We were talking about the bufo toads, for, uh, for example. Uh, well, cocaine may have an infamous and a well-deserved reputation as a dangerous drug when it's abused. But its contribution to the discovery of local anesthesia was pretty spectacular. And here we have another case, classic one, of a chemical that can be beneficial or detrimental depending on how it is used. Long before the arrival of European explorers, the Incas had discovered that chunga concoction made by mixing coca leaves with lime had a stimulating effect and that it warded off hunger. They also noted that applying coca-lace saliva to skin injuries numbed the pain. This effect was eventually documented by Albert Niemann, a chemistry graduate student working in the lab of Friedrich Willert, one of the fathers of organic chemistry. Willer had been given some coca leaves brought back by an Austrian expedition and asked his student to undertake a chemical analysis. In 1860, Neiman managed to isolate a pure white powder he christened cocaine. As was common practice in those days, he tasted the newly isolated substance. The powder, he reported, left a peculiar numbness 
followed by a sense of cold when applied to the tongue. Not much made of this observation until Carl Kohler came along. Kohler began his career as a surgeon at the Vienna General Hospital, where he struck up a collaboration with Sigmund Freud, who at the time had an interest in cocaine. Freud, of course, would go on to fame with his contributions to psychoanalysis, but at the time he was exploring the effects of cocaine on the central nervous system. Confronted with a young colleague who had become addicted to morphine after the amputation of a thumb, Freud decided to treat him with cocaine in an attempt to break the morphine habit. It actually worked, but it turned the unfortunate patient into the world's first cocaine addict. Freud became very intrigued by cocaine, and when he went on leave to Germany, asked Kohler to continue the experiments, which he did, in collaboration with another colleague, Dr. Engel. It was Engel's tongue that would become pivotal in the discovery of local anesthesia. One day, after tasting a little cocaine from the end of a penknife, Engel remarked, Oh, how that numbs the tongue! It was at that moment that the scales fell from Kohler's eyes. He had already become interested in eye surgery and in fact had experimented with anesthetizing the eye with morphine, ether spray, chloral hydrate, potassium bromide, all of which were known to have effects on the nervous system. None of these were effective and general anesthesia with chloroform or ether, already widely practiced at the time, was not suitable for eye surgery because it failed to stop involuntary eye reflexes. Interestingly, Filler had been aware of the numbing effect of cocaine, but had never made the connection to his eye research until Engel's comment. A classic experiment quickly followed. A solution of cocaine was placed into the protruding eye of a frog. Kohler was unable to touch the eye with a needle without any reflex action occurring. The frog's other eye responded in the usual fashion. Kohler then bravely trickled a solution to his own eye and using a mirror, touched his cornea with the head of a pin. There wasn't the slightest unpleasant sensation or reaction. Local anesthesia was born. Yeah, in those days, boy, they did some interesting experiments on themselves. <laughs> Before long, cocaine found wide acceptance in eye surgery, but it wasn't problem-free. It dilated the pupils and caused other undesirable central nervous system effects. Eventually, it was replaced by synthetic compounds that retained the essential features of the cocaine molecule, but eliminated most of the undesirable effects. The most successful turned out to be Procaine, familiar under the trade name Novocaine. It was followed by Lidocaine, Benzocaine, and a host of others. All because Dr. Engel noted that his tongue became numb and Dr. Kohler's mind was ready to capitalize on this observation. Such a discovery should have secured a position for Kohler as an ophthalmologist in the Vienna hospital, but fate intervened. After being called an impudent Jew by a colleague during an argument, Kohler responded with a punch. This led to being challenged to a duel with sabers. It seems Kohler was as good with a saber as with a scalpel because he managed to inflict two gashes on his opponent without being harmed himself. But duels at the time were illegal, and when news of the confrontation reached the hospital's administrators, 
Kuller's hopes of a position were dashed. He emigrated to the U.S., where he worked as an ophthalmologist in private practice in New York until his death in 1944. To what extent he used cocaine is unknown, but the drug is still occasionally used for eye and nasal surgery. It's available from the Malincrod Company, the only licensed one to produce purified cocaine for medical use. The raw material is purchased from the Stepan Chemical Company in New Jersey, which has government approval for the importation of coca leaves from Peru. After the cocaine is extracted, the leaves are sold to cola manufacturers for use as a flavoring agent. But don't look for any cocaine in cola beverages. The extraction process is very efficient. So there you go, an interesting story about cocaine. Tomorrow, it being the first Monday in August, it is my time to entertain and inform the audience at the Eleanor London Public Library in Cote St. Luke. The show starts at two o'clock and everyone of course is welcome. And tomorrow I'll be talking about some interesting little stories from the world of science that I've come across in the last few weeks, bring you up to date on what is happening with some uh, important and some uh, entertaining stories. The Eleanor London Public Library is located in Cote St. Luke on Cavendish Boulevard, right across from what uh, used to be called the Cavendish Mall, although now it's called the Cartier Cavendish. And uh, my presentations are you know, highly visual. We use a lot of slides and of course, uh, give you a chance to ask questions. So if you want to be entertained and informed, join us tomorrow, two o'clock at the Eleanor London Public Library. Otherwise, we will see you here, same time, same station next week. Until then, I'm Joe Schwartz, hoping all the chemistry in your life comes out just right.